0: This is the Behind the Badge podcast with me, Daniel Freeman. And me, James Roberts. Each episode we'll be chatting Oxford United with the names of yesteryear. Whether it be a former player, manager or chairman, our aim will be to listen to their story. Behind the Badge is an unofficial
1: podcast that digs deep into the highs and lows of Oxford United's history. We hope you enjoy it. Well, joining
0: us on the latest um, episode of Behind the Badge is the, uh, the former Guardian and current Daily Telegraph journalist uh, Jim White. Jim, thank you for for doing this for us. It's really appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me, Daniel. Uh, Jim, I suppose give us a bit of background. Really, uh, how did you end up? Um, how did you end up living in Oxford? I know it's been quite a while now. Yeah,
2: uh, I moved here ages ago, 1996. I moved here from London, and um, uh, I, I don't, I don't. I, I mean, I was born and brought up a Manchester United supporter, and. Um, involved in in, in football um, on on many levels. And one of the things that I've got an addiction for is live football. So from the get-go, uh, I was going to Oxford United Games. This was when they were still at the Manor um, and taking my, uh, my, my sons to watch. I was very keen on kind of inculcating them in, into football and, uh, at an early stage. And uh, both of them are now very keen Oxford United fans. So I can I just take this opportunity to apologise to the pair of them, really?
0: I believe how enriched you are in, in, in the history, actually, going back, obviously, to, to the Manor days. And obviously, it wasn't too far later, by the sounds of it, that we did actually leave. But you did enjoy uh, potentially promotions and relegations at the Manor with, with your sons, by the sounds of it.
2: Yes, we did, yeah. Um, we, we, we saw some good games. We saw them against... Uh, Chelsea in the Cup, I remember queuing up for uh, tickets uh, for that one and, uh, in, you know, some great occasions uh, there. Uh, then moving to the Kassam and we've seen every, everything there from, uh, you know, relegations to, uh, to non-league games. I remember going to a game when they were in the National League. I can't remember who it was against, but I remember the ball went in neither area. For the entire 90 minutes. It was a nil-nil draw. Neither area got the ball. Ball went in. And uh, you know, what what was brilliant was that they wanted to go back to the next week, you know. So there was something going on there. But we we saw them um get promotion at Wembley. The cin- actually, seen them at Wembley a few times because we went to the what's it, the was it called the Freight Rover Trophy, whatever it was, um, that uh, uh, no, it wasn't. What was it called? It wasn't called the freight was
1: it? it it would have been the Johnston's Paint Trophy, and then and then the Checker Trade the year after. But yeah, I mean, it changes every year, so yeah. I don't don't blame you for not knowing.
2: Yeah, check, Checker Trade. So we've seen them. Uh, that so that was against Barnsley, um, and uh, then against Coventry. So we've seen those, and we saw them against York City in the uh, in the um, the promotion from from the National League. So seen all the big games. Yeah,
0: and just just while we're just going back on sort of the the early days as well, Jim. Uh, obviously, you say you're a Manchester United fan. Were you anywhere near the manor on Sir Alex Ferguson's famous um, first game in charge?
2: <laughs> no, with the coach driver on the uh, on the bench, wasn't it, that one? Uh, Ray Houghton scored, I think, for uh,
0: Oxford, didn't he,
2: in that game? And um, yes, and, and Ferguson uh, famously was sitting on the, uh, on the bench and looked down the bench and there was a bloke he didn't quite know who... Who is who is who's that? And uh, he said, um, "Who are you?" At the end of the game, who are you? And the guy said, oh, "I'm the coach driver." How are you doing, sitting on the bench? And he said, "Oh, Big Ron used to let me used to let me sit on the bench, so I just always have." Well, Ferguson soon put a stop to that. Big Ron, of course, another Oxford connection. Um, but uh, yeah, and that was uh, that was when was that? Eighty six, was it? I think. Um, and Ferguson's first game, yeah, an absolute disaster for him.
1: Did you see much of uh, Oxford United during the glory days? Then, obviously, it was three three seasons in the top division, Milk Cup win at Wembley, or, or did that kind of sort of live experience of the club first start in the mid nineties? No,
2: I didn't see them. Uh, I, di- I never, I never saw them when they were in the top division. No, it was uh, my my um, uh, yeah my experience of them was from the mid nineties. Um, th- 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 what was it called then? Was it called the? Cha- it wasn't called the championship in those days, was it? Whatever
1: the second division is, it would have been the old, probably the old division, just division one, I it think, underneath the Premier League. Division
2: Sh- one, actually, it may have been called. Um, but yeah, that's that's when I first saw them. Yeah, and then the the sad decline and the Kassam down into uh, the
1: National League. I wanted to ask, um, 1996, obviously a, a year that any Oxford fan will. Remember his promotion from what is now League One. Um, earlier this year, you, you you wrote a piece that was a lovely piece about Jerry Beach, and um, you would have seen him play for well, probably the second the whole second half of his Oxford career. Really, uh, when when you were going there, um, what are your memories of him? Because I imagine, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a little bit too young, but um, he seemed like the sort of player that Oxford fans knew how good he was. But maybe at the time. That you started watching the club, you, you might not have known just how good he was.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. I, the, the, the whole West Ham business where he was ridiculed uh, for um, what were clearly significant mental health issues and the ridiculousness of having an asset as good as Joey Beecher and then letting it go because you didn't really know how to cope with it. You know the, You've got a million pounds worth of quality there um, in those days, and and you just sort of dispense with it so casually as West Ham did. It's it's quite remarkable, really, when you think about it. Um, and and you know it that was a, He moved to West Ham just at the point that Premier League was starting, and I think he would have become had it worked out for him one of the superstars of the early days of the Premier League. You know, on a par with say, for instance, Paul Merson or someone like that possibly even getting into the England team. He was he was that good. Um, but what was, I think, really nice about Beecham was he was so passionately engaged with Oxford United. It, all he ever wanted to do in his life was play for Oxford United as a young boy and so on. And the reason why he moved to West Ham... He, was, he didn't want to go, he wasn't a Cristiano Ronaldo figure kind of stirring up a transfer opportunity or whatever. He was a guy who was quite content to stay with his hometown team. And yet they were in such financial difficulties post the Maxwell years that they needed him to go um, and they needed the money from that transfer. And he was very reluctant about it, but, but he went. And I got that sense when he was back at uh, Oxford that you know he was recovering that joy. Now I think it's easy to post-rationalise it, isn't it? That clearly the mental health issues were still there, and there were days where you could go and watch Oxford, and and it wasn't until you saw the 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 match report the next day that you realised Beecham had been playing. You know he could disappear from a game. But when he was engaged, when he was mentally up for it and really engaged, there was no one better. No one I've ever seen um, in in an Oxford United shirt as as good as him. He he was he was really high quality and the enjoyment and engagement with the fans was was great. And I think it comes from that kind of association. Everybody knew him, you know, a lot of people Known him through the youth ranks, coming through the system, the, the the local leagues and so on. This was in the days before academies seized players at six. You know, he played for for the local teams till he was twelve, and 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 so on. They knew him from school. You just see him walking through the street. what's him walking through the streets in Summertown and and think, God, oh, that's our superstar. You know, there was a a much closer affiliation than you would get. Um, I guess the, the, the closest that, that a modern Oxford United fan would get to that is with Matty Taylor. But Taylor had that time when he was transferred out of the club. So um, well, as, as did Beecham. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, there is something about your hometown. The chant of is one of our own that really does add something. And Beecham was the
1: exemplar of that. Did you have? much contact with him, either sort of just personally or even professionally.
2: Yeah, he was an incredibly shy person, um, you know, reluctant uh, in, in in conversation to break up. I mean, he'd be perfectly polite to you, but, you know, he was not somebody who was the life and soul of the party. Um, and in later uh, years, um, you know, you, you, you'd you often see him around Summertown. Um, I think he worked in the bookies up there, which was uh, kind of mad given his, his, uh, his, his addictions to gambling. So um, I, think, I think he worked in the bookies on, 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 on Summertown High Street, and you'd see him outside having, having a smoke and you know he'd always nod and say hi if you, if you said something to him, but he wasn't someone who was gonna engage you long in conversation, um, uh, introverted person. And, and and that that was an interesting dynamic because very introverted, very shy, but on the pitch, you know, the old cliche—that's where he did his talking.
0: It would have been Dennis Smith that got the best out of him, probably around about the sort of time that you moved to Oxford and started watching uh, the club. Did you have much of a relationship with Dennis? I mean, from the outside, uh, he, he he was a he was a character, and uh, there's a famous quote of him basically saying that at one stage he he was being tipped to be the next England manager. Uh, he said as a you know enjoy in, in, in when we got promotion from uh, well division two uh back then did, did you have much uh much to do with with dennis
2: yes i think that was probably in his own mind that uh, i'm not sure anyone else uh shared that interesting stat about uh, dennis uh, was that um in 2011 i don't know if you knew this he was he was the chair of the board the FA disciplinary board in the Luis Suarez, Patrice Evra case. Um, so he became almost one of the great, great and the good, which was rather <laughs> surprising given, <laughs> given how brusque he could be. Um, but you're right. I mean, a, a, a tremendous um, uh, tactician and and motivator. And and also, I think probably uh, an understanding. You said there he got the best out of Beecham. Now. To be able to get the best out of as complex a character as that, it takes a a slightly higher level of management than the old cliche about some players need an arm around the shoulder and others need a kick up the backside. I think you've got to have a level of kind of psychological understanding slightly above that. And I think he probably did. Um, You know, his personal career moving on to Sunderland and so on, I don't think he probably got as far as he might have done. Maybe maybe he should have stayed at Oxford.
0: And certainly a few players around that time that um, were breaking through the ranks that maybe didn't get their chances on moving more on now to the sort of maybe the Malcolm and sort of David Kemp, uh, even Ian Atkins' eras as we moved to the Kassam Stadium. And if you think about the likes of uh, Dean Whitehead and Chris Hackett, Simon King... Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are others that I've forgotten along the way as well. There are a number of good players. There's Malcolm Elias, I think, that was one of the sort of main players at that time. Was, was he someone that you had a relationship with, Jim?
2: Yeah, Malcolm, Malcolm Elias was a, a, a huge figure in in developing young players. He had he had contacts with with every um, local uh, youth team cl- club and so on. Dean Whitehead, of course, actually, uh, financially, was of huge use. He never on the pitch uh, for 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 oxford but you know with the transfers that he made every time he made a transfer oxford got a nice little slice of it and it was he he almost kept the club going for about about 10 years um i was uh, uh just um w- one of my boys uh, played football and i managed his team and then became chairman of the uh of the youth club that that he was a part of actually it was the same one that uh, although he was long before our time. It was the same club that uh, Beecham uh, played for. Uh, and the, the, when word got out that there was a good player within the club, um, you know, uh, Malcolm Elias was very, very quick to get on the phone and chat through. But he was also a realist. You know, He realised that you what you're talking about doesn't necessarily fit what he was interested in. Um, but I think that shows the level of attention to detail that he had that he was, you know, in touch with all the youth uh, clubs around the area and beyond, you know, he would bring in players from Berkshire, you know, from miles around um, to, to Oxford United, very, very, very uh, good at, uh, at, at finding talent um, and very assiduous at it um, and, and hugely important in developing uh, Oxford United the, the the critical junction with all youth product is the gap between youth team football and first team football and you get these stars coming through and, and and they don't make it and the problem i think at Oxford is typical of many a club is that the manager is under such intense pressure to get results now he can't necessarily develop a player and, and the oddity is that the good players often have to go elsewhere where there's perhaps a bit more time or perhaps more the structure that enables them to uh to to thrive and then and, and then you realize oh god we had him and, and, we, and we missed out
0: I mean, at the time we were firefighting, weren't we, pretty much every other season. And, you know, the likes of Malcolm Shotton and Ian Atkins had to do what was right at the time. And and, and the flip side is obviously we've benefited from later on, certainly the other team's players who who haven't quite made it at one level and, and come to us. So I'm sure we'll come on to that as well. But just while we're at this sort of junction, Jim, obviously Oscar Sam starts coming on the scene um, and, uh, and, and buys the club, you know, potentially in, in some people's eyes, saves the club. Um, what were your thoughts while you could see all this going on in the sort of late 90s as we start moving to the Kassam Stadium era
2: It's interesting, I did an interview with Kassam when he first took over uh, of uh, Oxford United um, for the Guardian I think and uh, it it, it, it was an interesting um, uh, it was an interesting conversation um, because uh, yes he made lots of noise about you know, wanting Oxford to do well, et cetera, et cetera. But it was very, very obvious talking to him. He didn't really understand football, nor was that interested in it. And I always thought that it was clear, even from those early uh, co- communications with him, that um, Oxford United was a commercial operation and he saw the whole site and the development of the site as the thing that interested him, not the glory of, of the football. And I always... The comparison with John Majewski at Reading was was the most obvious one, in that they're roughly about the same time and the development of the club, the building of the stadium and so on, and, and, and what went on around it. And it always struck me that Kassam, everything was done on the cheap. Everything, you know, right down to the hotel. The hotel at, at the Kassam Stadium is, is, you know, shoddy, the stadium's shoddy. If you look at the Majeski Stadium uh, at Reading, you know, the, the, the hotel is kind of built into the, the structure of the stadium. It's, it's, it's much better thought through. The whole, the whole place just has a little bit more uh, investment, I guess, um, and, and I think that's indicative of, of the way that Kazan thought about the club. Do it on the cheap, make as much money out of it as possible. And that is not um, a policy that's going to get you very far, I don't think. And, and that was obvious. And, and you know, the, the comedy of the fact that the that there's not four sides to the ground is 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 all part of the Kassam ownership. So yes, you're right. He he did save the club in the sense that he resolved an issue, but it was always the commercial side that, that interested him. And that fantastic piece of real estate that they happened to have at the, what the stadium that he called himself. Um, the, 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 I can't remember what it was called. What was it? it was something farm, wasn't it, initially? It's
1: Mintry Farm, it was.
2: Mintry Farm, that's right. Mintree Farm was the original stadium. And then he, he called it after himself in the same way Majeski did at uh, Reading. Um, it was always that, you know, that one eye on the commerce. But, but as I said, everything is so cheap and nasty. That little, that, 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 that uh, leisure centre thing there with the cinema and so on, it is so crackly built. I mean, it's just rubbish. I mean, when I sit in the, uh, uh, the Oxford Mail stand and look across uh, at it, you just think that is an eyesore. I mean, why is it there? It is really awful um and and that's really his legacy isn't it um you know the savior he he bought it from uh robin hurd didn't he the uh formula one um uh guy uh and i met robin hurd a few times and, and i think robin hurd was more enthusiastic about the football yes he was a businessman but he was much more enthusiastic about the football than kasam he just he didn't have the money and i'm not sure Kassam ever had the money, he had the, his timing was right. So that commercial development and the property development and also basically blackmailing the local council into saying, if you don't let me do this, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, end the football club and you won't get any votes from the football fans because they'll blame you. Um, and, you know That enabled him to, to drive through the, the commercial things that have kept him going ever since.
1: It's interesting you mentioned the Reading comparison, like you say, various very, very similar times. Both clubs are moving from sort of quite ramshackle stadiums into uh, what were supposedly nice new ones. And and I think it's fair to say both clubs had reasonably similar sort of size, I guess, of their histories. Obviously, Oxford have won a major trophy. Reading, five years after Oxford moved into the Kassam, were in the Premier League finishing eighth. Oxford United were uh, were down in, in what's now the National League. Do you feel like you know, with with more sort of football now, and more kind of, I guess, care for the, for the football side of the product, you know, Oxford could have been in that sort of position.
2: Oh, without without question. I mean, it's uh, it, it, it is to do with having everybody playing in the same direction. And there was always a tension at Oxford United that the chairman was not interested in investment; he was interested in extraction, and that was always going to be the the, the principal problem. You know that. Uh, We saw that when, uh, um, you know, we're at the top of uh, League Two, about to get promoted. The manager wants a a new contract, Um, he doesn't get one, he walks out and, you know, hang on, no, the the principal priority is to get promotion. Oh no, because I'll have to pay the players' bonuses and and all that, you know, really does play into it. Uh, I remember talking to uh, Peter Rhodes Brown about, um, remember the, the the great Maxwell uh, Reading, um, uh, what was it, Thames Valley Royals. Um, I think there was an anniversary of it or something. And I wrote a piece about it and spoke to Rhodes Brown about it. And he said that he remembered coming back on the bus from an Oxford game when Oxford was stuck in, they'd been in the non-leagues for a couple of years and they, they were coming back down there, and on the radio. Uh, they were playing um, the match uh, of Reading against Liverpool uh, in the Premier League was that was the, the commentary match and Rhodes Brown turning round to whoever was sitting next to him and saying, Thames Valley Royals wouldn't have been that bad an idea, would it, compared to where we are now? Um, so yeah, I mean, the contrast was just ludicrous at that point. I mean, now it's not, of course. Now where you have um, a, a progressive management, a progressive, a really excellent Team manager, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I I can never quite work out who owns Oxford at the moment, but whoever it does seems to be uh, keener on investment. A very good managing director, Um, you know, you you've got everybody rowing in the same direction. Whereas um, at Reading, it seems to be going pear-shaped in 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 an, in, in the other way. And you know, they'll soon be meeting. Um, you know, it's 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 not far off. I mean, in fact, they may even pass each other. So, um, uh, you know, it's interesting the way that it fluctuates, but it comes back to the simple thing that at a football club, to make a football club work, everyone's got to be having the same commitment and the same priorities. And for too long under Kassam, it wasn't, there weren't. The, the, the manager and the chairman were completely at
1: all. Absolutely yeah and you mentioned that the sort of Ian Atkins the sort of messy end to that that era and you know a, a club in I think comfortably in the playoffs had been top of the league in that season um, I guess by that point you you'd really only seen an Oxford that were in sort of financial difficulties or in some sort of uh, keeping the purse strings quite tight it, it almost went a little bit I guess farcical over the next few years or so didn't it so you, you kind of had the end of End of Ian Atkins, and I think it was Graham Ricks next as as well. What were your sort of memories of, of that time? Because it felt a little bit like when Oxford failed to get promotion um, in that 2004 season under Atkins, it was kind of only going one way. Yes,
2: absolutely. And uh, you, but again, you didn't really believe it would end up in, in the non league. You just thought that, you know, this is a club that gets seven, eight thousand regularly. It can't possibly go down. But know a function of dysfunction uh is 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 inevitable and and that that game against lake and orient was was one of the most depressing um things um in a sense it showed the passion of the club because there was a huge crowd there we were there um uh, you know willing them on um but but passion isn't enough you know passion from the terraces and perhaps better passion on the pitch it's it's not enough when the system behind you is isn't working and I always got the feeling that Kassam didn't really care he was interested in in the rugby being there the rugby coming in there completely fouling up the pitch and you know all this all the stories you heard about how it was impossible to get maintenance teams in there and just absolute rubbish it 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 really was poor um and yeah it it did seem inevitable you're right James that was the that was the, the sense you
0: got it was uh there was a very interesting um year or so when we well it wasn't even that actually when we had a, a an Argentinian manager uh Ramon Diaz um, Jean-Marc Goran who uh, was uh, sort of in the background of, of, from, from Monaco and it, with Diaz on with the football you were playing on the pitch with the with the players that he was attracting and I think in the background Goran was trying to manoeuvre something where he would actually get a consortium together to buy the uh, to buy the football club I don't know if it was the stadium as well but buy the football club it promised to be a really exciting time then and, and there were stages when the, the football was was really good
2: Yes, that's right that was a that was a moment wasn't it i mean in a in a sense it was it was indicative of of Kassam's, uh ownership that and and indeed the fact he still owns the ground and all those problems that it's caused that, that nothing was simple it was there was always rumors there were always people trying to take it it was always assumed that he was going to let it go and, and 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 so on and um you know that there, there, there were there were possibilities i mean you know Obviously, I don't think things really sorted out until they got a proper, proper manager in uh, in Chris Wilder, and that and that was the that was the big change. Wilder was was great, although I remember going to matches um, at, at the uh, at the Casam and and people grumbling about Wilder's football, uh, as I'm sure you did. You know, I'm sure you remember those those uh, things. You know, well, it's not good enough. It's not attacking. It's it's too it's too constricted and so on, but it's so difficult to get out of, out of the national league, and and he did it, and that was the starting point and the turning point. Uh, and then I think, I think Michael Appleton was a, a hugely important uh, figure while he was there. I mean, I, I met Michael a few times. Um, you know, he was a he was a, a an ambitious young man who made terrible uh, choices. Um, but when he came to Oxford, he found an affiliation, and by then the, the the chairman was behind him and um you know he he sort of paved the way for where we are now in the sense that play good football you'll get good results. I think chris Wilder's philosophy was we play the football that's necessary it's pragmatic football. this is how we do it we, we we'll we'll get out that way, and I think that that wasn't as crowd-pleasing, but as we've seen in the last, I suppose, four, three or four seasons, definitely under Robinson, but but Appleton as well before that, it really brought the crowds in. And, and in a way, that's necessary because the only way they can make money as a football club is, is at the turnstile. They don't make money off the stadium. They don't make money off the refreshment stands. They don't make money in the way that other football operations do and so in fact commercially uh, you know the revolution that Appleton brought and that Robinson has continued uh, obviously there was a, a an interregnum in between them with uh, with Pep Clotet but you know that those the, that that pattern uh, has become the prevailing thing at Oxford and and in a way it's commercially the most likely thing I mean you want to go along and watch good football and they have provided it you know you're paying Twenty quid to sit in the Oxford Mail stand. You want to see something decent.
0: You touched uh, briefly uh, on on Wembley and the, the playoff final win, Jim. I mean, at the time, and we spoke to Calvin Thomas about it as well. That there was the potential of, of real financial difficulties if we didn't go up in twenty ten. Um, can you can you sort of remember having conversations with people that that that, that may have led to to that that happening?
2: Yes, I mean, Calvin Thomas was a, 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 a interesting figure because, you know, a very bright man, very committed, but uh, like, uh, and, and also, you know, I think passionate and understanding of, of what's necessary. But again, it's, Kassan was like a brick wall, but whatever you did, you were bashing your head against it. And the lack of ownership of the ground is, is critical in all this, you know, um, it the, I mean reading have fouled up but they own the ground. I mean just just not owning the ground is 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 always going to undermine everything and the the position they were in with no investment coming from the chairman and the inability to actually generate revenue beyond the playing the playing side and if you're in the national league you know you ain't going to get big home crowds, you get very few travelling supporters, so you just don't get the big, the big crowds. And it was critical um, where they were financially if they hadn't gone up. I mean, it made such a huge difference. I mean, if you, if you look at where they are now, being able to play next season, um, Sheffield Wednesday, being able to play Derby County, it, it, it just means that they have got a huge, huge crowd coming in. When your fixture list is, uh, I don't know, Dover Athletic altering them, um, it just is not going to do anything, is it? It's just not going to do it. And the whole structure was so, as I said, so dependent on, on, on buns on seats.
1: It's a perfect kind of way to move into, I guess, the future, really, because like you say, the, the Kassam Stadium has been a millstone, really, for the last, last two decades uh, on the pitch under Appleton and now Robinson, the the sort of product, I guess, if you want to call it that, has improved. And and it's a club that was looking towards the bottom of the National League 12, well, 14, 15 years ago, and now looking towards getting into the championship. It's fair to say, isn't it, though, that without a stadium that the club, well, I think the club would lease it, but it would be a long-term lease and, you know, maybe a sort of peppercorn rent. But without that, know there's only so far Oxford United can go
2: absolutely um if you look at the investment that is being made into the training ground um you know there's been a load of development over the summer they put new pitches in and so on I think that that shows you that this is this is a club with ambition um and where it can make uh investment it is doing so um I think the first thing that Robinson does to uh new signings is show them the training ground isn't it i think he, he leaves he leaves showing them the stadium until later they probably don't know where they're playing until they until they first pull on the shirt um but that that that's a suggestion of of, of, of where they want to go stratford stratfield break is a is a is a complicated place though you know i think there's going to be a lot of resistance from the locals it's going to take time um and, and so on. I mean, in my, in, well, in, in, in my time following Oxford, there have been so many potential new stadiums. Also, Partway was mooted as one uh, for a time, but they've got to get out of this mess. And um, what I really don't understand about Kassam, um, apart from the fact that he puts way too high a figure on uh, the, the, the Kassam Stadium, is why he doesn't sell it. I mean, I, do you know? What do you know? I've, I mean, I've I've asked loads of people, what's what's he after? What why is there this kind of constant brinkmanship on the stage? What else can he do with it? Um, I mean, I, I assume if if Oxford moved to Stratfield Break, it'll be an empty space. Presumably they'll knock it down and turn it into, into housing. I I don't know what 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 else can he do with it? I've I've just not understood why he doesn't come to a sensible arrangement cut his losses and 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 sell it um because the club cannot progress unless they own their own ground or at least have a better arrangement than they have now he's charging them an arm and a leg for a shabby uh facility that 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 isn't good enough and if the club wants to progress look at forest green rovers you know they are moving into uh, albeit this deliberately kind of eco uh, thing. But that's what you can do as, as, a, as a, a club of this scale. And I think it's absolutely necessary. It's, it's going to have to be done. Otherwise, I think Oxford won't progress up the, up, up the leagues. However good the manager is, uh, how, however good the players are, we, we might come on to that. Um, they're not going to progress up the league until they've got everything heading in the same direction all parts of the club moving forwards.
1: Jim, I appreciate we're tight on time, so um, if, if you can distill how uh, your sort of prediction for maybe the season ahead uh, in, into sort of 10 seconds or so. Um, you know, what, we've talked about the long-term goal. What do you think is happening in the next 12 months?
2: Well, they're slightly going down, aren't they? You know, uh, playoff final, uh, playoff semis not quite making the, the playoffs. I, 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 I think uh, that if Sam Bulldog had been fit, they probably would have made the playoffs this time. Um, that, they're that close. Um, I trust the manager. I think he probably needs for his own personal um, direction um, to get them into to the playoffs. So at least it won't be easy. Um, I think having Gorin and Branigan in, in midfield would, would be as good as anyone's going to have in that division next season. Um uh, maybe they could do with another um, centre-back. Um, we'll see what he can do in the window. He'll probably bring in someone from Ireland. That's what he usually does.
1: Would be nice. Uh, <laughs> Jim, really appreciate your time on this one. Thank you for taking us through sort of 25 years of following United.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to Behind the Badge. Stay across our social media platforms for our next
1: podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at behind the underscore badge or if you want to email us it's behind the badge 1893 at gmail.com